On this cassette by Michael Harper, we apologise for the poor sound quality at the beginning and end of the recording. The theme of our concert has been the keys of the kingdom, and we've been looking in workshops and in plenary sessions and in small groups and in our ministry to each other, we've been considering aspects of the kingdom. We considered evangelism, for example. We considered love in action as part of the kingdom. We've also uh, considered the ministry of healing, ministry of deliverance, and uh, one other. Anyway, it's gone from my mind. Anyway, sorry? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, yes. And all this has kind of been around that one theme of the keys of the kingdom. I want to begin by uh, reading to you some words which were written about a very famous Englishman who died about two weeks ago. His name was J.D. Priestley. He wrote about 150 books. He wrote numerous plays which are uh, being uh, acted all over the world today. He's a very remarkable man. He's not a Christian. And someone wrote this about him and the quotation from him. He was a grand writer long before he was a great old man of letters wasn't afraid to write theatrically to shout to the gods. And then he quotes from one of his books, Literature and Western Man, and this is what he wrote. The catastrophic outer world of our age is the confused and angry inner world of the 19th century dramatized on the larger scale. The modern age shows us how helpless the individual is when he is at the mercy of his unconscious drive and at the same time is beginning to lose individuality because he is in the power of huge political and social collectives. It is an age of deepening inner despair and of appalling catastrophes. An age when society says one thing and then does something entirely different. And everybody talks about peace and prepares for more and worse wars. Western man is now schizophrenic. And I think that's a pretty good assessment of the state of our world suffering from the mental disease of schizophrenia. I think we need to address ourselves and have done so at this conference, not so much at the schizophrenia in the world, but another kind of schizophrenia which is in the church. Part of God's plan, I believe, for renewal, for the healing of the churches, is to heal us of this schizophrenia, of which there are many different features. And I want particularly to address this morning the schizophrenia which divides concern for the world on the one hand and concern for God on the other, as if God and his world were totally different. Now, already Derek Rawcliffe has uh, beautifully addressed himself to that uh, yesterday. But I want to continue that particular theme. It's amazing how we Christians suffer from what some call tunnel vision. We can see things straight ahead, but we can't see things on either side. And when I spoke the other night uh, in the Civic Centre on that prayer of uh, the Apostle Paul, it always comes to me that Paul prayed that we may comprehend, understand with all the saints 
the length and depth and breadth and height of the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I believe we need to pray for that power to comprehend something wider than the tunnel vision that we tend to have. Our one major concern and our apparent blindness to those things which are on either side. So what is the kingdom? I want to say briefly two things about the kingdom which you probably all know, but perhaps they need to be repeated uh, if uh, we are to understand the kingdom. The first is that basically the kingdom that Jesus came to teach, preach and to exemplify uh, in his life and ministry, the kingdom does not refer to a geographical uh, part of this earth. I live in a country that's known as the United Kingdom. I'm afraid it's rather less united now than it uh, has been in the past, but it is still called the United Kingdom. And uh, everyone knows when they are in the United Kingdom because someone will ask you for your passport when you arrive. And you know that that is a certain uh, geographical area. And I trust you all realize that when we're talking about the Kingdom of God, we're not basically talking about a geographical area. Nor is the Kingdom a political Kingdom. Nor is it to do with a society. The Kingdom and the Church are two quite distinct entities in the New Testament. When we're talking about the Church, we're talking about something that is different to the Kingdom. But having said that, we need to say that of course the Kingdom does extend geographically. And some people have a vision for a particular area, a town, a city, a country, a nation, or Polynesia, or Melanesia. And therefore we pray that God's kingdom will come in that particular area. There's nothing wrong in doing that. Also we pray and believe that God wants to extend the kingdom, as we shall see, into the political structures of our world. He wants to affect society. He wants to change society. And that also is part of the kingdom. But basically the kingdom is the rule of God. It's God's authority. We know that uh, in heaven God has supreme authority and every angel, everyone who ministers, all the saints who are there in heaven with Jesus, they obey him. They submit to him. They are under authority. Heaven is a very uh, ruling place. It's a place where there is peace. But we know that that's not true on earth. And that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. God's will will be done. That's the first thing. The second thing is that in the New Testament, when the kingdom is being taught and spoken about, sometimes the kingdom refers to what is a present reality, here and now. And sometimes the kingdom refers to something that is future. This comes out in the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, Thy kingdom come. That is future. Bring in your kingdom, Lord. And yet at the end of the Lord's Prayer we say, Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came preaching, preached, The kingdom of God is at hand. And actively demonstrated the fact by the things that happened in the lives of people. The kingdom came to people there and then. 
And yet Jesus also taught that there was going to come a kingdom in the future. So there is one sense in which the kingdom is here and now, and there is a sense in which the kingdom hasn't yet come. Someone, a theologian, has put it very well by saying that we Christians live in the overlap. The overlap between the kingdom that has come and the kingdom that is yet to come. And so there is a sense in which we rejoice in the present reality of the kingdom and we pray for the future manifestation of the kingdom. I want to read just one verse in the Gospel according to St. Matthew. It's a well-known verse. It comes in the 24th chapter and it's in Jesus' teaching about the second coming, the last days. And uh, in verse 14, we read this. Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached amongst all nations throughout the world, and then the kingdom will come. Then the... Then the uh, Uh, the end will come. Now I think this is a very vital verse for a number of reasons. And uh, if there is in our minds and hearts and the minds of others in the church confusion about the kingdom, then I think this verse shows how important it is that people know what the kingdom is. I guarantee in England that we went round our churches and asked the majority of church people what is the kingdom of God they wouldn't have the faintest idea, really. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ has told us to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And what's the good of our going and preaching the gospel of the kingdom? And and people say, well, what is the gospel of the kingdom? We say, well, we don't know. We're just told to preach it. So obviously if we're told to preach it, not only amongst our neighbours and friends, but to go out in the whole world and preach the gospel of the kingdom we surely must know what the gospel of the kingdom is and we must believe it and we must understand it and we must preach it to the whole world. There's another reason is because if you look through the New Testament and you read the teaching of Jesus you'll find that Jesus majored on his teaching about the kingdom. He was always talking about the kingdom. Even after his resurrection, you would have thought he would have given up, but no, he was still teaching. And in the uh, weeks before his ascension, we're told that he taught his disciples about the kingdom. He was still teaching about the kingdom. And so there's an added reason why it's important for us to know and understand what the kingdom is. And lastly, we see in this passage that Jesus definitely links the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom with the end of the age. And you may know that in that passage Jesus speaks about earthquakes and wars and rumours of wars, fightings and fear coming upon people and all those things. But he never says about those things and then the end will come. This is the only statement he makes in which he actually says now the end will come. And therefore, if we are concerned to know God's program for the whole of human history, and if we are concerned not only about the beginning of that program in the first century, but when the end of that program is going to be affected in a time no one knows, but we're concerned about it, then we ought to know about the gospel of the kingdom, because it's when that gospel of the kingdom 
has been preached and only when it has been preached to all the nations then the end will come. Now, in our churches, and uh, we've covered a lot of this ground already this week, in our churches, basically there are, I believe, three views about the kingdom. And this is why I want to, this is where I want to emphasize this whole thing about the tunnel vision that we have, because uh, people who have these views tend to have just that one view of the kingdom, and they won't look to the left and they won't look to the right. That's all they see. The first view I've called the evangelical view of the kingdom. And this is the view that I grew up uh, with as a young man, as a converted Christian. I grew up with this view. It was put before me continuously that the kingdom is evangelism. That the purpose of evangelism is to bring people into the kingdom. And I found very early on that a lot of the people, not all of them, but most of the people who were preaching this gospel of the kingdom, of evangelism, had got tunnel vision. They never saw that there was any need to really care for the world or be concerned about the world except rescuing people out of this wicked world. I remember as a young student, when I'd just become a Christian, being amazed sitting down and talking to a very dedicated Christian who said uh, he never ever bought or read a newspaper. I said, but don't you want to know what's going on in the world? He said, no, that's, that's not of God, that's wicked. We don't want to know about that. We've got to know the Lord. I read my Bible, I don't read papers, newspapers. I then discovered to my amazement that he never voted in elections. He said, because that, that's wicked, that's the world. We don't have anything to do with the world. We're in the kingdom, that's Jesus, that's the... That's the church. Now that's a very exaggerated view, but there are people, many, many millions of Christians, who have that kind of tunnel vision about the world. And after I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, or actually before that, but it became very strongly uh, something that I experienced after I was baptized in the Spirit, I, I found that many of these same people had tunnel vision about the charismatic dimension. They didn't believe. They said, oh no, that's just for the first century. That just began in the first century. I was telling a story about, um, which was told me some time ago by David Duplessis, uh, a story about one of these islands of the South Pacific. And there was a Christian radio station in one of the islands. And this Christian radio station was uh, a composition of Roman Catholics and Baptists and uh, Pentecostals and Anglicans and so on and they were broadcasting to the islands and because they were a united group they had to agree that they wouldn't push their own particular lines the Baptists were not allowed to preach about uh, believers baptism by immersion Roman Catholics weren't allowed to say anything very much about the Virgin Mary uh, I don't know quite what the Anglicans were banned from doing, but they were banned from doing something or other. And of course the Pentecostals were not allowed to say anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts. And soon the news came that one of, the outer, one of these islands, that the first people there had become Christians through, re through listening <coughs> to this radio program, and they were absolutely thrilled. And then everyone was delighted about that. Roman Catholics were pleased, the Pentecostals were pleased, the Baptists, the Anglicans, a whole lot. And then when 
Whitson or Pentecost Sunday came round, they actually happened to have a Pentecostal. <coughs> uh, sorry, they had a. No, they, they wouldn't invited a Pentecostal to preach on that occasion, but they invited one of the men who does not believe in the baptism of spirit and spiritual gifts. They invited him to speak on Pentecost Sunday, and of course he had to preach from Acts chapter two on this radio program. So he preached on Acts chapter two. And he spoke about the filling of the Spirit. He spoke about the speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit. And then he said, but my friends, I want you all to realize that that was only for the first church. <laughs> so the news came back a week or two later that um, all these people on this island who had just become Christians were all now speaking in tongues. And so people were looking around and blaming the Pentecostals for this. And they discovered it was this man because this man had said, but that was the, for the first church. And so these people on this island said, we're the first church on this island. <laughs> and so they, they received. But this is an amazing, if you look at, I haven't time to read them all, but if you have, would like to jot them down, there are three passages, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 to 5, where Paul says, when he came to Corinth, he said, I... I came to you not only with, uh, with the word, but I came to you with the power of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Spirit. Romans chapter 15, verse 18, Paul is describing his whole evangelistic mission, and he, ha and he tells how the Lord confirmed that ministry with signs and wonders. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 says the same thing. It's very clear in Scripture. And one of the new things I believe the Lord is showing to many of us it's not new, it's been in our heads, but it's getting down to our hearts now, is that when we go out to evangelize, we're to also expect to see the Lord confirm his word with signs and wonders. But you see, some people have that kind of tunnel vision. I want now to go on to, to re speak about the second view of the kingdom. And if the evangelicals have tunnel vision, these people also have tunnel vision. I call them the radicals. And as you will know, if you've had any contact with the World Council of Churches or any contact with other radical groups in the church, you will know that these people are very strong on the kingdom as meaning combating racism, as meaning the uh, interest and concern for human rights. It means concern for the social injustices, concern for peace, for... Uh, uh, pacifism or nuclear pacifism these issues are the concern of these people and they have tunnel vision that's all they see they don't seem to see the need to preach the gospel of the kingdom in the sense of evangelism and they have no real understanding in fact they keep a long distance away from charismatics who they think are quite crazy and their concerns about the signs and wonders now I want to address myself to this particular section because I think that I can't go into all the details of this but my increasing conviction is that they have taken the whole understanding of the kingdom in the New Testament and they have applied it wrongly. I think that Jesus, when you read the Gospels, I believe that Jesus primarily was concerned in relationship to the kingdom with evangelism what we call evangelism with the signs and wonders this comes out in a number of ways not least in the fact that when he sent the 
12 out and the 70 out. He didn't tell them to go and care for the poor. He didn't tell them to go and uh, get involved in the... No doubt there were terrible injustices in Jesus' day. He didn't go now take on these Romans with their wicked slave, uh, slave trade and so on. Stop all that. Didn't do that. Jesus told them to go and preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. That's what Jesus told them to do. Now why didn't he tell them to do the other things? And I believe the answer is very clear because they already knew about that. It's already in the Old Testament. And it's in the Old Testament not because so much because of the teaching about God as Redeemer that comes out in the teaching about the Jesus of the Kingdom in the New Testament, but because God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Because God has created his world and we are by nature all brothers and sisters, not yet in Christ, but brothers and sisters in Adam. And because we are all in Adam, then we have a duty before God to care for our brother. And that, you will find, comes right through the Old Testament. I told uh, at the Ixthus conference how some years ago I took a blue pencil and I've underlined all the references that I can find to God's concern for justice. God wants his people to be concerned for justice. And you'll see it's deeply embedded in both the law and the prophets. If you look at the law of the Jews, you'll see that the laws laid down were to prevent the Jews from exploiting each other. And you'll see the law comes particularly in the law relating to the year of Jubilee. It was to make it impossible for one section of the community to exploit either through uh, seizing land or seizing property, exploiting another section of the community. It is very doubtful whether that law was ever really practiced in Judaism, but it's there and the, in the revealed will of God and you'll see again and again and again in the law look after the poor, care for the poor, don't exploit people, be just in all your dealings. Comes all through the Psalms too and particularly it comes in the prophets and the prophet said, as Derek was telling us yesterday, look at the, the sinful things that you're doing with society. It comes out particularly in the prophecy of Amos. So it's there. And therefore Jesus didn't have to say, now do this, because that they already knew that. The new thing, the new concept of the kingdom is not a political or social kingdom or an economic kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom in which God goes to the heart of the problem of man and his injustices and the way in which he deals with his fellow men, which is the sin of the heart, that's why when Jesus came and preached the kingdom, it was not basically to do with that which was already there, but introduced this whole, I've come to redeem, I've come to recreate the creation, and come as the second Adam to bring in a new race of people who will love justice, who will not oppress uh, his brother. Now I want to give you a practical example of this from the life of <coughs> an outstanding Englishman, <coughs> whom some of you, most of you will have heard his name, and perhaps know something about him. Because one of the deep concerns of my heart is to try to draw together those who are concerned with sin in society, and those that are concerned with personal sin, those who are concerned with the redemption of society, and those who are concerned with the redemption 
of people. Those are concerned with the power of the Spirit to speak to our uh, world situations today and those who are concerned with the power of the Holy Spirit to bring Christians into the experience of the baptism of the Spirit. The man's name was William Wilberforce. He died in 1833 and last year we celebrated in England the 150th anniversary of his death. And my wife and I were present in Westminster Abbey when a large uh, company of celebrated people, including uh, Charles, Prince of Wales, and Mrs. Thatcher and most of the cabinet, came into a service in Westminster Abbey to thank God for the ministry of William Wilberforce. Two of our great English historians, Trevelyan and Lecky, have said about the work of William Wilberforce through his ministry, the slave trade was made illegal. And these two world-renowned historians have said that what he did was among three or four perfectly virtuous pages in history. And there was one, he, one of them says it was one of the turning points in the history of the world. William Wilberforce became a member of parliament in, at the age of 21 and he was not then a Christian. He was a very close friend of the man who very shortly became perhaps our greatest Prime Minister of all time, William Pitt. William Pitt was the same age as William Wilberforce. They were both 21. At that time, our country was in the hands of a very corrupt government, the Whig government, that had been in, in power for 40 years. The reason why they were in power is because they were very rich and were able to control the elections and the whole thing was very corrupt and it looked as if it would go on for another 40 years. Within three years, William Pitt at the age of 24 had become the youngest Prime Minister we ever had and had overthrown the Whig administration and brought in a Tory government. William Wilberforce was converted to Jesus Christ and that transformed his life. Someone has written about uh, William Wilberforce that if he had preferred party to mankind, he would certainly become Prime Minister. He was certainly the most eloquent politician of his age, possibly of all ages. Marvellous man. <coughs> but he was converted. And in 1787 he said this, God has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners in Britain. Now that's a delightful 18th century way of saying on the one hand, he was determined to suppress the slave trade, to, do, to work in the world and to work for the suppression of evil in the world. On the other hand, he saw the need for the conversion of society. And he worked for both. He did both at the same time. And both were integrated together. Had there not been a spiritual movement in Parliament and amongst the leaders of our society, there would never have been the suppression of the slave trade. If he had not gone for the suppression of the slave trade, he would not have gained the allegiance of those who wanted to work also for that end. So the two worked perfectly together. William Wilberforce had guts. It took him 20 years to pass through Parliament the suppression of the slave trade and another 26 years before the slaves were released. 46 years he worked for that. And he died uh, just after he saw the victory. 
but he's a man who also conducted vigorously personal evangelism. He didn't himself go preaching in the open air or anything like that, but quietly, but in a very dramatic way, he worked to win his fellow members of parliament and the families he knew to Christ. They said at the end of his life there was barely a hundred families in the whole of his section of society that hadn't got at least one person who'd become a Christian through his ministry. And I think we see here in this man the beautiful flowing together of social action on the one hand and personal evangelism on the other. Here was a man who didn't have tunnel vision. He saw both and saw the need for both. One of the things he said, which is very interesting in the early days, he said that his efforts for evangelism, in fact, all that he did, he said, I'm not running amok and tilting at all I meet. But I want, he said, to make goodness fashionable. And he succeeded. Goodness was very unfashionable when he became a member of parliament at the age of 21. Most people acted and lived corruptly. Debauchery was the order of the day in British society. By the time he died, goodness had become fashionable. And he formed with several others a group of men who became known as the Clapham sect. They included a man called Thornton who was a great leading banker, included the man who later became Lord Shaftesbury and who carried on William Wilberforce's ministry in society, attacking the child um, slavery that was in England at that time, many other social abuses. They worked with, they did both, they prayed together, they worshipped together, they worked together, they evangelized together in a wonderful way. Professor Anstey has said about William Wilberforce and his fellow workers, from the assurance of sins forgiven, they knew they could not only overcome the evil in their own hearts, but also conquer the evils in the world, which they felt called to combat. They did it both. They did both. And I personally am thankful to God that a similar kind of thing is beginning to happen in England at the present time. There's the beginning of a movement amongst politicians and other leaders, young leaders in very prominent positions. And in the last 12 months, the Lord has drawn me into this uh, kind of ministry. And later this year, I'm going to the House of the Speaker of the House of Commons to speak to MPs and their wives. I've been asked to speak. And next year, we're hoping we're beginning to see, you may be interested to know this, we're beginning to see in the ministry of SOMA a drawing together of church leaders and the leaders in society. We're going to have probably a conference next year which will draw together uh, Christian members of parliament and people in our society who have influence in society and leaders who have influence in the church because we see this as something being drawn together. There's a lovely statement that William Wilberforce made, made that I commend to you. He said this, because you see William Wilberforce did not have the support of many Christians. When he began, you would think all Christians would have wanted to see the slave trade uh, made illegal. But not all Christians did. And he was charged with fanaticism. Everyone said, he's a fanatic. We've heard that said before, haven't we? And this is what William Wilberforce said. They charged me with fanaticism. 
if to be feelingly alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures is to be fanatic, I am one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. <laughs> well, if that's to be a fanatic, may God grant us all grace to be fanatics. Fanatics for evangelism and fanatics for the reform of manners, for the renewal of society. Uh, I believe God calls us to do both. I want to go on from there and say something about the third view of the kingdom. The third view of the kingdom which has come into prominence in this century is that the kingdom is referring to something which we might call charismatic. Now here, those who are charismatics do not have tunnel vision in relationship to evangelism because every charismatic or Pentecostal I've ever known is very keen on evangelism. But I find that many, if not most, charismatics and practically all Pentecostals have a total tunnel vision or blindness with regard to the radical nature of the kingdom and society. It seems that because they have so wonderfully joined those two together, they seem totally to miss the other. And what I want to challenge you, uh, brothers and sisters, this morning is to take the blinkers off, if you still have them on, and see the whole counsel of God. Comprehend the whole greatness of what God's plan is for evangelism, for charismatic renewal, and for the reform and renewal of society. God wants to do all three, and by his grace he'll enable us to do it. Now perhaps in this company I don't need to say too much about the charismatic, but let me give you some scriptures here, I'll read them to you, because I think it is so clear. It's a great pity, I think, that um, uh, evangelicals and radicals seem to completely miss this, because if there's one thing that is abundantly clear, is that the kingdom in the New Testament refers to what we call evangelism, it refers to healing, it refers to deliverance ministry, that is one thing that is clear. The other may not be clear, but this is clear as daylight. Let me read you the scriptures. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. There we're told... Um, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Here we are. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he's preaching this message about the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now read on to verse 23. He went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria and they brought him all the sick and so on and he healed them. There it is. Same breath, the gospel of the kingdom, healing. Let's look on to Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity. There. Can't miss it. Or perhaps you can. Read on to chapter 10. Here it is again. Called to his, his twelve disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity. 
Read on to verse 7 and preach. As you go, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Look on to Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 to 28. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's clear as anything. That's the kingdom. A lot of other things as well, but that's the kingdom. And if the church is not proclaiming liberty to those who are captives of Satan, the church is not preaching the gospel. It is part of the gospel of the kingdom. If the church is not going out and healing the sick in Jesus' name, we are being disobedient to the king, who is the king of that kingdom. That to me is very clear indeed. And if I may refer to just one other passage, it's the passage which has proved, which has been a kind of theme running through our conference, and that's the famous passage, I won't look it up because there isn't time, but you know it very well, in the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. When Jesus came into the synagogue and began to read from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, it's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There it all is, it's all listed down there. That passage has been used by radicals at nauseam to proclaim that this is liberation theology, this is liberating people from uh, oppression and so on. And those people who have proclaimed that have not proclaimed the other. Now how do we know what did Je Jesus said in that synagogue? Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If it was fulfilled in their hearing at that time through the ministry of Jesus, what did Jesus do? Read the Gospels, you see what he did. He preached the Gospel, raised the dead, healed the sick, cast out that demons. Whatever else that passage may refer to, it must refer to that. And if you look on in the uh, part two of Luke, you'll see in the Acts of the Apostles, Luke is very, very careful to show that that's what the early Christians did also. They went out and did it. They preached the gospel, they healed the sick, they raised the dead. They did it also. And I believe that Luke is very, very careful to show us in both his gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles that that's what the kingdom of God is. I want to uh, draw to a conclusion now. We're going to stop in a few minutes. But I want to emphasize also this verse which speaks about this gospel of the kingdom that I've been sharing about that it is to be proclaimed to all the nations the whole world and that's why I believe the kind of ministry that John Wyndham has with prom the, the, sport, the boats ministry and the ministry of Soma is so important because I believe the Lord has called us to do this where others are not doing it there are people in the church who are not proclaiming this full gospel. 
and therefore we have a special responsibility to go and teach it, to share it throughout the South Pacific, Africa, and wherever. Let me give you one example of this. In Nairobi, in Kenya, there is a very large Anglican church, or churches. There are over a million Anglicans in Kenya, most of whom are born-again Christians. And in Nairobi itself, there are thriving churches. I've been in churches which have membership of 1,500 or even larger. Marvelous. But I discovered this time there is not a single Anglican church anywhere in Nairobi where they pray for the sick. Not a single one. Now this is, I've discovered, ignorance in various ways. I won't go into the reasons why this is so because every time I go and share with uh, my brothers there in Nairobi, this is what they want to do. They say, is this part of the gospel too? I said, surely yes, here it is. We go through the scriptures. They say, right, we're going to do this. They'll, they'll soon be doing it. But we need to go and help them to see the way and to show them the way by which this gospel of the kingdom can be preached and proclaimed to all the nations. I want to end by saying something about the spirit in which we move out to do this. Because there's one thing about the kingdom. The kingdom suggests to our minds, I think, perhaps, maybe military images of going out and fighting and you know, bringing in the kingdom and sometimes people can get very aggressive about this and I think we need to be delivered from that because there's only one aspect of the kingdom in which we need to be aggressive and that's against Satan I remember years ago being given this advice about 20 years ago I was given this advice and this was in the very early days when there were very, very few Christians renewed in the spirit anywhere in any churches far from the Pentecostals. The advice was given to me don't fight. If you start fighting your fellow Christians the spirit of God will leave you because the spirit is not a fighter. And when we go to proclaim this message of the kingdom the way we proclaim it the kind of people we are is very, very important. The other morning I was reading a verse which um, I'd like to share with you. It's in one of the Psalms. It's Psalm 110. And it came fresh to me as I was reading it. Uh, it's a very well-known verse. 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is a messianic verse, it was fulfilled in Jesus, it's quoted in the New Testament. As I began to think about it, I began to see another meaning to it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And I believe what the Lord says to me through that and may say to you is that the Lord says, come on now, you sit down there and relax. You know, just sit down and relax. I'm going to deal with your enemies. And I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. Let me do it. And you'll find yours does do it. But when we start trying to do it, we lose the Lord. He's not with us in that. Many years ago I read a book which was written by a man who never saw renewal, extensive himself, although I believe he was a prophet, he was a Canadian, his name was A.W. Tozer. He wrote a very wonderful book. 
and he drew up certain principles, spiritual principles. So I won't go into all of them, I'll just mention one. One that has been indelibly imprinted on my heart. And that's this principle. He said, never defend yourself. Never defend yourself. If you are involved in a ministry which has the power of the Holy Spirit in that ministry, you are bound to be attacked. You'll be the target of Satan, but you will also be attacked by people. People will be threatened by you. People will say, ah, he thinks or she thinks, she's more spiritual than any of us. And they will say all kinds of awful things about you. Rumors will go around about what you're doing, and it will be very far from the truth. And you will be tempted to defend yourself. You'll be tempted to say words about yourself in defense. But I believe Pedro is right. It's a good spiritual principle. Never defend yourself. Partly because there's always sin in us anyway. Those awful stories that go around, most of them have at least got a grain of truth in them because we're not perfect. So we're not in the business of defending ourselves. If anyone's going to defend us, let the Lord defend us. And if we are righteous, he will defend us. If we are unrighteous, he will not defend us. So let's not us defend ourselves. We have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. We have an advocate. We have a lawyer in heaven to defend us. That's Jesus. Let him defend us. And let's not defend ourselves. I want to end uh, now with just one other quotation which has been a blessing to me. It comes from a uh, commentary on the book of Revelation. Man Millican, his name is. And he speaks about love in that commentary. And here it is. The love which teaches us, this is Christian love, true Christian love, is the love which teaches us to win and not to alienate, to raise and not to crush those who may only be mistaken in their views and are not determined enemies of God. The majority of people in the churches of the South Pacific are almost certainly not determined enemies of God. They may be mistaken, they may be very unspiritual, there are all kinds of things wrong with them. But almost certainly they are not determined enemies of God. And they will not be won if we go and crush them. If we alienate them with our words and with our actions. We go to love them and serve them and minister to them in love and grace. Their hearts will be won. I believe that's important. I want to end with reading the verses of a well-known hymn. Well, perhaps it's not all that well-known, but it's certainly... A beautiful hymn. It was sung at the William Wilberforce Memorial Service, the Thanksgiving service in Westminster Abbey. <coughs> there it is. And it's a prayer. It's a prayer I think we can all say amen to. For the healing of the nations, Lord, we pray with one accord for just and equal sharing of the things that earth affords to a life of love in action. Help us rise and pledge our word. Lead us, Father, into freedom. From despair, your world relief. That redeemed from war and hatred, men may come and go in peace. Show us how through care and goodness, fear will die and hope increase. All that kills abundant living, let it from the earth be banned. 
pride of status, race or schooling, dogmas keeping man from man, in our common quest for justice, may we hallow life's brief span. You, Creator God, have written your great name on all mankind, for our growing in your likeness, bring the life of Christ to mind, that by our response and service, earth its destiny may find. <laughs>